Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. And wow, what a lineup we have this week in the Byzantine liturgical calendar as we begin a new month, the last month of this year. Not the liturgical year, but the regular calendar year. It's hard to believe it's December 1st already. But we celebrate this week the prophet Habakkuk, the prophet Zephaniah, the great woman martyr Barbara, that great writer of our many liturgical hymns, and especially those from our funeral services, St. John Damascene. Then there's Sabas the Venerable, another great monastic, and batting cleanup, St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas of Myra, the Archbishop. Very big in the Byzantine Church. In fact, we consider him to be our patron saint. He's often featured on the icon screen, which is really quite the Hall of Fame. If you're on the icon screen, you are really, really important. <laughs> so Nicholas is often on the icon screens of Byzantine churches. And as I mentioned this week, we celebrate him with great solemnity and great celebration. A lot of these stories about St. Nicholas, you know, it's one of those things where you wonder, what is fable? What is fact? What is history? What is embellishment? One of the reasons for this is, well, first of all, St. Nicholas did exist. He was a bishop in the fourth century, and, and his life was chronicled by someone named Monk Michael. I don't really know who that is, but there are some chronicles of the life of St. Nicholas. Now, one of the reasons why we have a lot of confusion about what is true, what is really attributed to this particular St. Nicholas, is the fact that there was another Nicholas. And some of his stories got mixed up with the St. Nicholas. This other St. Nicholas was Abbot Nicholas of Sion, who was Bishop of Panara in Lycia in 564 AD. Now, he came later than the St. Nicholas. And inserted into the biography of the St. Nicholas was many living legends that were circulated among the people. And for this reason, it is hard to reconstruct a true biography of St. Nicholas. However, there are some things that we do know. He was born in 270 AD in Patara, a small town in the province of Lycia, present-day Turkey. He was the only son of a rich family. Attached to the religious life, he inherited wealth, but he used it for charitable work, for which he became famous from his youth. Now, he was also persecuted under Diocletian, the Roman emperor who was behind a great persecution of Christians during this time, which, of course, just produced a lot of saints. And as a result, he was, St. Nicholas was considered to be a confessor of the faith by the local people. And then finally, he was elected Archbishop of Myra, which is the capital of Lycia, what is today modern-day Turkey. Now, among the miracles that are attributed to St. Nicholas, and this is one of the reasons why he's a patron saint of a lot of things, like sailors and unwed women and so on, 
His prayer during a pilgrimage to the Holy Land calmed a violent storm on the open sea and prevented certain shipwreck. So that's one of the reasons why he's the patron saint of sailors. He also appeared in a dream to Emperor Constantine, warning him of pending injustice, and he saved three innocent officers from execution. And in fact, based on that story, and there has to be some truth to it or enough of a tradition to it, because based on that story, is one of the prayers we say on the Vespers, the Vesper prayer service for St. Nicholas. That's on the eve of his feast day. It would be December 5th on that evening. December 6th is the feast day itself. And this is what the prayer says. When you appeared in a dream to Constantine the king, you gave him this warning. Release at once from prison those you have unjustly confined, for they are innocent. No murder did they commit as you claim. O king, listen to me, or else I shall call upon the Lord. Now, I read this prayer, but it would normally be chanted as part of the evening prayer service in the Byzantine church. You notice something about this, and something else to know about St. Nicholas. Yes, he was this gentle, humble, very quiet man of mystery. In fact, whenever he comes to visit our children in my parish, as he does each year, he comes up on a horse and a buggy, big, beautiful, white Clydesdale horse, pulling him in a little coach and buggy with a lantern and a driver with a top hat. Oh, it's just wonderful. And the kids get a ride with St. Nicholas and the horse in that carriage. But whenever he comes, he does not speak to the children. He doesn't say anything. I teach the children that it's because... He is a man of mystery, a man of prayer, a man of quiet, and he seeks to listen to the children. And it's a good lesson for them about being quiet, the virtue of being humble and quiet. But at the same time, Nicholas was known, as you just heard here, to be very forthright, very courageous, even stern at times. In fact, one of my favorite stories of his is when he stalks across the hall during the Council of Nicaea and slaps Arius across the face, Arius the heretic. For that, the bishops threw him out, but there was an appearance to those bishops by the mother of God who told those bishops, you restore St. Nicholas back to your assembly of bishops. And so Nicholas is known for both things, for his meekness and humility, but a great, great love of truth and integrity. And he would get very tough in the face of that which was not true, not honest, that did not have integrity. Okay, Nicholas also, one of the great stories about St. Nicholas is this. He was warned by God, actually, secretly, and he provided secretly a dowry to three poor girls. They were destined by their own father to become women of the streets, to provide their father with a steady income. And so he didn't want to expose their father's sinful design, so the saintly, mysterious, quiet Nicholas, during the night, threw a bag of gold pieces, coins, money, for each girl is a dowry for them, and to enable each of them to lead an honest life. And that's actually part of the basis for our giving of gifts to this day. Yeah, it came from this tradition of St. Nicholas. I'm proud to say that the Byzantine spirituality gave this marvelous image, this marvelous person and spirit of St. Nicholas to the whole world. There was a 10th century biographer, Metaphrastus, whose true name was Simeon. He wrote that this unique deed of St. Nicholas was known to the people as a whole. In Europe, this particular deed of St. Nicholas was embellished by local folklore and made him the good old bishop. Now, later on, in not just English-speaking countries, for example, when the Dutch came here to America, and they were largely Protestant, as were many of the Germans in time, they had a difficulty with the fact that this great figure that everybody loved, including them, and was celebrated by that time all over the world, 
especially the Christian world, of course, they had a problem with him being a Catholic bishop and portrayed as such. So they actually began to modify his vestments so that he ended up being the Santa Claus that we know to this day. Of course, Santa Claus is a variation of St. Nicholas. See how he gets there? Santa Claus. He's called by other things too, Chris Kringle and so on. But this sort of distillation of his vestments and what we know now is something that you can actually kind of see a bit if you look closely at the traditional garb of Santa Claus and your imagination stretches just a little bit and you can kind of see the echo of his original bishop vestments in what he wears. The little floppy hat with a tassel on it is actually the bishop's mitre that sort of got flopped down as it got redesigned by those who were not Catholic. But nonetheless, he was such a towering figure, such an attractive figure, such a mysterious and charming figure that even though modifying him, kind of de-emphasizing his Catholicity, nonetheless, Protestants, the Dutch, the Germans, Catholics, Christians all over the world still celebrate him in some form. And in the end, it's that same spirit of charity and of mystery and of meekness and of charm. Yes, especially suited for children, but not just for children. Now, the public veneration of St. Nicholas started very early after his death. Already, there's 5th century records that indicate his grave became the site of numerous pilgrimages. People came all over and to venerate his relics and to implore his intercession. And miracles were recorded at the site of his tomb. St. Nicholas, after the Blessed Mother and St. John the Baptist, became the most venerable saint in the Byzantine Church. As I mentioned before, he is considered basically the patron of the Byzantine Church and is oftentimes seen on icons, certainly on icon stands and iconostasis. Now, the celebration of the Feast of St. Nicholas as a feast day in the liturgical calendar was introduced in Constantinople, which of course is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey, during the rule of Emperor Justinian I, now that's in the 6th century, and he built a magnificent church in honor of St. Nicholas in the Blasherne quarter of the city. And later on in the Western world, the first church in honor of St. Nicholas was built in the Lateran Quarter of Rome by Pope Nicholas I in the 9th century. So from that time on, hundreds of churches have been erected in his honor. And the veneration of St. Nicholas continued to extend to various countries. Now, his veneration in Europe was greatly enhanced by the translation of his holy relics to Bari, Italy in 1087 AD. Now, notice that, that time, 1087? That is a date that is just after the Great Schism which, of course, is dated at 1054 A.D. So that's an interesting little detail to keep in mind as we look at this whole thing with St. Nicholas and Bari. Sometimes it's said that his relics were stolen and taken to Bari, Italy, but that doesn't give the accurate picture. And we're going to talk about that picture more fully when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's Reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. Why does St. Nicholas deliver gifts under the cover of night? Well, that tradition began in my hometown of Patara in Asia Minor when I came to the help of a destitute man who had three grown daughters. He was so poor that he could barely feed them. Because he was so desperate, he was tempted to sell them into slavery. 
Then I remembered the words of Jesus who said, When you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. And so I put together three bags of gold coins and tossed them through the window at night to help them. That was the first of my midnight visits. And that's the reason to this very day, even when I'm dressed as Santa Claus, I still deliver gifts under the cover of night. May the same love, joy, and peace that the angels proclaimed on that first Christmas animate your own heart to give hope to those most in need. For Christ is born. Glorify Him. <laughs> You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. The Tabor Life Institute, which is dedicated to the formation and education in the theology of the body. To find out more about the Tabor Life Institute, you can go to taborlife.org. That's TaborLife.org. Especially if you're interested in conferences and retreats, in particular for youth, young adults, and also for those of you who speak Spanish. That's TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host, and we're looking towards a wonderful week here in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, the climactic moment of that week. Actually, well, it's actually, of course, always Sunday, but just prior to that, in fact, beginning on the weekend on Friday, is the Feast of St. Nicholas, great, great figure in the Byzantine Church. In the year 1036, the province of Lycia was occupied by the Saracens, who prohibited the veneration of St. Nicholas at his grave. So what happened was, Pious merchants from Bari, Italy, who at that time were still following the Byzantine rite. So now that's part of that detail I want you to notice. When you hear the story about, oh, these Italian sailors stole St. Nicholas' relics, that doesn't give the right picture. These were Byzantines. Italy was basically, at that time, for several centuries, under Byzantine influence. So they followed the Byzantine rite and decided to, quote-unquote, steal his venerable relics and they brought them back to their own place on May 9, 1087. Now, Pope Urban II solemnly deposited the saints' holy relics in a marble sarcophagus under the main altar of a magnificent basilica built in Bari, where they are still publicly venerated, and where he continues to bless devoted pilgrims with new miracles. Now, Pope Urban blessed this, so <laughs> it wasn't some kind of crime. Okay, so when they say steal, we say that in quotes. Actually, it was a very pious act. I'm glad the sailors did that. Better to have Nicholas's relics somewhere than maybe to have them desecrated or lost. Now, the solemn translation of St. Nicholas' relics was witnessed by Theodore, the envoy of Metropolitan John II of Kiev. This is in 1080-1089. In his work, the narration of the translation of the relics of our father, Nicholas of Myra, the wonder worker, Theodore masterfully described the moving event and became instrumental in the introduction of the celebration of the Feast of the Translation of the Relics of St. Nicholas to Bari in the metropolitan province of Kiev, which is celebrated on May 9th. The Feast of Translation eventually reached the Carpathian region, and that's where my particular church came from, the Carpathian Mountain area, which is Central Europe. That's when the monks of Kiev founded a monastery on Trinetchahora near Mukachevo and dedicated to the honor of St. Nicholas. And from that time on, St. Nicholas became the heavenly patron saint of the Ruthenian Byzantine Church in that region, which is sometimes called Subcarpathia. And devotion to him is very deep. Now, the Greeks, meaning basically the Greek Orthodox, 
never accepted the Feast of Translation into their liturgical calendars since the translation occurred after the schism of 1054. That's why I wanted you to notice that date of the actual translation of St. Nicholas' Relics to Bari, and that date is in 1087. And so you see, it's a little bit after the schism, so it's interesting how already the Greek Orthodox did not accept this feast into their calendar. But there's another fact that indicates that the Church of Kiev, and consequently the Ruthenian people of Subcarpathia, did not automatically subscribe to the schism of Constantinople. For at the end of the 11th century, they were still in union with Rome. How about that? Isn't that interesting? The schism was in 1054, but the ancestors of my church back then didn't really accept that schism or hadn't sunk in. They still saw themselves as cooperating with the Pope of Rome. Therefore, St. Nicholas became for us a witness of the unity of the churches and of the friendly relations of the Ruthenian people with the West. As a matter of fact, it was in the city of Bari that Pope Urban II wanted to celebrate the first synod to discuss the reunion of churches in 1098. Interesting, isn't it? Sort of debunking a few things here. That's why I'm glad you're listening to us here in Light of the East. You're only going to get this kind of truth here. Now, the holy relics of St. Nicholas reposed in the ad hoc erected sanctuary near Myron Lycia remained incorrupt for a long time, and they secreted an oily substance called miron. It's like an ointment. There are icons today who secrete this holy oil as well. Some of you may have seen them. They do exist. I've seen them. I have that oil, in fact. Now, this miron or myrrh was usually collected and used for the anointing of the sick through which many people were healed. And because St. Nicholas continued to work miracles even after his death, his tomb attracted many people and became a celebrated place of pilgrimage. Many pilgrims on their way to the Holy Land stopped at Myra to venerate the relics. Now, the miracle of Miron continued even after the translation of the saint's relics to Bari, where it was called Manna of St. Nicholas and was distributed to the people. During the restoration of St. Nicholas' Basilica in Bari, and this happened the 1950s, the precious relics were once again re-examined and studied and then deposited into a new tomb in the crypt where they continue to secrete prodigious manna. So, let there be no doubt that St. Nicholas really did exist, that he was this holy bishop, but this bishop of strength and fortitude, a righteous man, yet a humble, holy man a quiet man, a man of mystery, and a man whose holiness has left such a legacy to the world as to have the whole world to this day celebrating him in some form. St. Nicholas himself, Santa Claus, Kris Kringle, Santa Claus, there's probably other names as well, but that spirit remains, that captivating spirit remains, and proud to say we can trace this incredible incredible observance, this worldwide, mysterious, popular observance of St. Nicholas to a Byzantine saint. Very proud to say that. I have to say that. Now, if you have children, I do hope that you'll teach them about St. Nicholas. Share with them what you heard in this program today. If you want more information, one place I would recommend is the Byzantine Leaflet Series. You can get that from the Byzantine Seminary Press in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Byzantine Leaflet Series. And this is series number 15, actually, about St. Nicholas. Again, this stuff is very scholarly. I'm giving you a lot of facts and figures from history. And yes, there is legend and embellishment mixed in, as there always is in history. Let's face it. I don't know. Did, did George Washington really chop down a cherry tree and say, Father, I cannot tell a lie? Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Maybe there's something else that he did that was similar. But the point is, we see George Washington as an example, as a righteous leader of our country. Well, same thing with St. Nicholas and a lot of the saints. There are embellishments, but the point is, as always in the church, same thing with the scripture. 
there's always some message there, something that remains, regardless of what the parts are made up of, whether it's embellishment or real science or both. The fact is that something remains that is significant for all time. And obviously, St. Nicholas has been significant for a very long time, and he will be for all time, because what he represents strikes us at the level of our most holy, our most human. It gives us that sense of a beautiful, enchanting mystery. This is not fantasy. God is enchanting. God is an enchanting mystery, a, a poetic, beautiful, truthful, good, enchanting, charming mystery. And so are those who lived so close in the image and likeness of God as saints, like St. Nicholas. Now, there's one other thing I want to move to now in our program, and that's a question that I often get. I want to correct, actually. Oftentimes, people will ask me, or they refer to the Byzantine Church or Eastern Catholic Churches as Eastern Orthodox Churches or Orthodox Catholic Churches. And I find this to be something that happens often, even despite after explanations of things, which I know can be very complicated. In the East, things are always very complicated, I guess. And even after that, it seems that what happens is a lot of people who aren't Byzantine Catholic or Eastern Catholic are trying to learn about it. They will often refer to the Eastern Catholic churches as Orthodox Catholic or Catholic Orthodox churches. Now, there is something kind of interesting about that, something good about that. It does kind of indicate, kind of gives a little bit of history in that, yes, the Eastern Catholic churches did come from the Orthodox churches, and this was after the schism of 1054. So there was the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic church. 500 years later, parts of the Eastern Orthodox church began to reunite with Rome and Rome with them, but only parts, and that's what makes up the Eastern Catholic churches today. So to say that they're Orthodox Catholic or Catholic Orthodox churches, I guess there is some bit of a historical truth in that, but it's also not exactly accurate and something that I think our Orthodox brethren would find to be certainly unacceptable. The correct way to refer to Eastern Catholic churches is just that, the Eastern Catholic churches. Sometimes Eastern rites, but most most correctly to say Eastern Catholic churches, not Catholic Orthodox, Orthodox Catholic. In other words, drop the word Orthodox out of there. If you can remember that, that would make it easy. Drop the Orthodox word out of there and just call it Eastern Catholic. And of course, Eastern Catholic is an umbrella term. There are many types of Eastern Catholics, like Byzantine Catholics or Syrian Catholics, Syro-Malabar, Syro-Malankar, Belarusians and Melkites and so on, Maronites. But Eastern Catholic is the right way to say it. And I bring this up only because it's a mistake that's often made very sincerely, very innocently. And since it happens so often, I thought maybe I would help to give a simple way to, to say it correctly. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you do have a most blessed feast of St. Nicholas. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media.
Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the light of the east, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years.